I'm excited for our conversation today. Always awesome to talk with somebody who has put in the work, uh, made a book, a very comprehensive book. You know, people who really uh, dig in deep, have conversations like how we're having conversations now, but sort of curating it together, connecting dots and putting it out into the world. You know, it's, it's a labor of love and, uh, you know, want to help uh, do our part to sort of signal boost it up and talk about, you know, how it came to be and some of the insights from this book. So, Kate, we'll have you introduce yourself really quickly and uh, sort of how you got to kind of get to this point of writing this book in the first place. Well, thanks so much for having me, Dustin. So I'm Kate Colbert. I am a marketer and market researcher, um, communications expert, corporate ghostwriter, higher education thought leader, and author of the new book, Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education, which I co-authored with Dr. Joe Salustio. Um, and um, yeah, it's been kind of all higher education all the time lately since um, putting together a very comprehensive book um, based on the insights of 125 college and university presidents. This will be, and I'm sure you probably have heard this phrase before, you know, like it, it is really just like, it feels like this sort of like textbook or sort of just like this really comprehensive sort of kind of lexicon of this moment, you know, of just sort of these insights for all these people that are sort of, you know, they've been through it, they're going through it, they're looking ahead to the future and everything. But, you know, like I said, I, I like these sort of books because it's also, I think, like, you know, you can kind of get the little like kind of bite-sized pieces to an extent of just like, oh, I read, you know, the sort of like perspective yep. or things like that. But like, um, so I guess in an, in sort of a, as concise of sort of a package as you can kind of put it, like, how did this book come to be? Because I think just like one, like, what's the topic? How are we going to put it all together and all that? Like, what was sort of that process like? Yeah, so I think Commencement's origin story is actually really uh, pretty interesting. So um, right at the beginning of 2020, two gentlemen who I did not know at the time, Dr. Joe Salustio, who's a senior VP at Lindenwood University, and Elvin Freitas, um, who is a higher education expert himself, um, had sort of linked up. They had not known each other very long either. Um, and they decided, like, let's create a podcast and just bring interesting people from higher education um, to the microphone. And that podcast is called the EdUp Experience Podcast. Um, it is um, now, I believe, one of the largest or most downloaded podcasts in higher education around the world. Um, and it just so happened that they started this kind of just as the pandemic was about to um, um, hit us. And they very early on started inviting pretty big names, um, presidents of colleges and universities, as well as, you know, folks like the head of education at, you know, Google, um, and started having really interesting conversations. And about a year into that, they had um, interviewed a little over 100 presidents, I think, at that point, as well as other people from the higher ed ecosystem. And a mutual contact between um, the EdUp guys and, and me introduced us. Um, and um, we had a conversation and they said, you know, very few people, unless they've been listening from the very beginning, are going to go back and listen to 100 plus interviews with presidents. But we believe that there's a book in there. We believe that the insights from these presidents, and when you think about it, right, Dustin, like if you've worked for or on behalf of or consulted with, you know, five universities, eight colleges and universities, you might have a pretty good breadth of, of insight, but you don't know what's happening at another hundred or another thousand. And so very few people have ever had that kind of insider view um, from all of these president's offices in higher ed. And so they contacted me and said, we think there's a book there. And I said, it sounds like it. Um, and um, they didn't know at the time. They, they contacted me thinking that I was going to help them with maybe some ghostwriting or some publication support, because in addition, the communications company that I own happens to have a book publishing division. And so they were contacting me because I was a publisher. 
What they didn't know is that I'm a professional writer and that I'm a higher education expert. And so they had no idea um, that I knew the content and that I've worked inside higher ed um, as the head of marketing and communications for multiple institutions. And I've been a faculty member and um, and Joe just was super excited. And he's like, you're a purple unicorn. Like you're exactly who we need um, to do this book. And so we decided that we would sort of slice at the 125 of presidents mark that they have now interviewed well over 200 um, uh, presidents on, on EDUP. Um, and we decided we have a lot to say about higher ed having worked in it and around it. And I've been consulting for colleges and universities across the, the nation for a long time. And we decided that while we have our own opinions, we were going to let the president's opinions lead the book um, and the structure. So it was a hard project. Um, you know, it's 558 pages long. Um, it's actually a pretty easy read for a long book because it's got big pull quotes and quizzes and reflection questions and whatnot. But, um, you know, I started out, I, I was behind the eight ball. I hadn't heard all the episodes. Um, and so I had to go back in time and listen to them all and sit there and descript with the transcripts. And every time somebody said something brilliant, I thought, oh, that might be worth quoting in a book. And I would copy paste. And of course, they were a mess. And I'd have to clean them up and make sure it really said on screen what they actually verbally said. Um, and, and I did this for hundreds of hours um, for several um, months and then started to say, OK, now how do I pull out the themes? And so it was actually a fairly scientific project at first, you know, really sort of figuring out what are the themes how does that break out into, you know, six or eight or 10 or 12 um, sort of chapters? And then how do those chapters fit into sections? And what's that sort of overarching um, theme about what the future of higher education looks like? What really helped, and, and, and I actually have said that I would not have helped write this book um, if this had not been in place. Um, very early on, Alvin Freitas had a really brilliant idea. And he said to Joe, when you interview the presidents, um, and you should always ask at the end of the interview, what do you think the future of higher education looks like? And those moments were fascinating, as were the entire interviews. But but having that sort of thread that stitched throughout all those interviews of them um, sort of postulating about what the future might look like um, helped us pull this all together. And so um, without our own opinions sort of informing it yet, we decided that this is what the leaders in higher ed are saying. Um, these are sort of what the treasures and troubles of higher ed look like right now. And we decided to write a book that we wanted to be kind of equal parts love letter to higher ed um, and um, devil's advocate. Um, we do share strong opinions throughout the book um, and they're kind of hard to miss. And we make our own predictions in the epilogue. Um, but we're not afraid to let the reader decide. So we might share a story from a president in chapter three that argues, you know, that that the student is a customer and they're a VIP customer and having a more retail um, based approach to it um, is really the way to, to handle student centered um, learning. And there might be a president in chapter seven who argues completely the opposite. And um, you can kind of figure where we come down on some of these topics, but we wanted this book to be for anybody who worked in higher ed. Um, we wanted people to be seen. And I think that's what's been really kind of exciting is that you know, whether you're two years into a higher education career and you work, you know, in the admissions office or you're a faculty member or you're a chancellor and you've been doing this for 25 years. And this book speaks directly to those of us um, who work in or, um, you know, on behalf of and around higher education. So the primary readers are people who work in it. But as a consultant, we wanted to make sure that those of us and who consult to it um, were spoken to as well. So it was a lot of work. Um, it, it took a long, long time to pull it all together and to write it um, and then to make it interesting. So it was really important to me that this did not sound like a dissertation. So the book is 
funny and fun and witty and snarky. Um, and it says a lot of the things that people have been wanting to say about higher ed and we're afraid they'd get fired um, and nobody can fire me. Um, and Joe's pretty fearless. <laughs> and so we went ahead and just told the truth. That sort of a content strategy is like, okay, if you do something, how can we sort of like repurpose it? you know, cut it up into clips for social media or, you know, do whatever. But theoretically, I'm sure somebody like, oh, yeah, it would have been so easy. Like you just did all those interviews already and just like, maybe like dump the transcripts into, you know, like a book and then you're done. What a bad like, book. I mean, yeah. and, and to be fair, you know, like I think Joe and I have jo joked around about this, right? So it, it, I think actually at the beginning, he, he kind of thought since, you know, he was responsible for getting all that intellectual property to us and, and doing those interviews. Um, and then having that sort of inside higher ed leadership um, um, perspective in the book. Um, but as as a writer, and I think he expected that I I would kind of do that, that I would just dump a bunch of interesting things and sort of string them together. And um, and that would have been a really bad book, um, you know, no matter how brilliant, because the voices of these presidents sound really different or you know, how you go from talking about what this president said to this president, you need really thoughtful transitions. Though I will say this, Dustin, that made for a really challenging, my effort to make this a really smooth, interesting read where you wanted to keep flipping page after page after page um, did sort of bite me um, at one point. So, you know, of course we were writing this book um, during a lot of change in higher ed, which is kind of the whole point. And there inevitably would be people that were interviewed who maybe, you know, were no longer with that institution and there was a reason maybe we didn't want to quote them anymore. Or maybe they were embroiled in some sort of scandal. Um, and we thought, oh gosh, maybe we don't want to put their name in this book anymore. And I had worked so hard to take a quote and then sort of reflect on what they said, draw a conclusion from it, then connect it to a new concept that introduced the next quote, that the quotes were so perfectly sort of transitioned together that it was almost like old-fashioned Christmas lights where if one bulb goes out they all went out and so if I would remove a quote somehow like the entire chapter would fall apart um, and I would have to go back and kind of rewrite the whole thing so there was definitely those moments um, because there was you know that kind of the whole higher ed leadership great resignation um, I think I think I last heard um, in the last four years uh, one-third of college and university presidencies have, have turned over another part of it is just like choosing to do it at this particular time when it's like, you know, very relevant and all that, like, it's either yeah, it's either like very dry, like you said, sort of like academic, because it's just kind of like, you know, it doesn't have a sort of a personality to it. Or it's like, you kind of rip out too much of sort of the core of it. So it's kind of shallow, where it's like, yeah, I mean, it's a quick read. It's kind of just, you know, what it is, but there's not really that idea of I think, like, what I certainly try to do a lot with like writing and this is like that idea of like connecting dots because you might just be getting sort of like this one perspective here or this you know uh so that and i also appreciate because like anybody who's listened to me for a while or like in different podcasts like i do like that sort of vibe of like asking like the same question and, and it is sort of like a beautiful sort of uh kind of catalyst for you know uh having that opportunity that potential to be like okay we've done like, you know, X amount of episodes or conversations, like what, what are sort of the insights from, you know, everybody about, you know, one thing or another. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's, you know, something where, you know, something worth having, you know, is going to be a challenge, you know? So I think, uh, like I said, I mean, just good on you for, you know, putting in the work and the labor of love here. And, uh, cause yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, like I said, sort of this like really comprehensive view on this moment and like, you know, the the time capsule, I'm sure another sort of metaphor or something, you know, so it's like helpful for people now, 
to have all these insights, but then also for people like in the future, they can really have such a visceral sort of tangible sort of insight. Yeah, I think it's going to be relevant. We got asked this yesterday and Joe and I were um, speaking um, to an audience of about a thousand people at Western Governors University and um, they were asking, somebody asked um, a question about like, you know, how long do you think the book will be relevant and will you be writing subsequent books and, you know, like book updates and how's all that kind of work and, you know, every time somebody asks me about the next book, I just want to faint. Like, um, it's like, oh, you have no idea how much work this was, but this book has a lot of legs and I do think that, um, for at least 10 years. I mean, really through the 2020s and beyond. And we're talking about a lot of trends in the book that are going to take a while um, for um, some institutions to really implement the changes they need to make um, or to feel the pain that they're going to pay it, it, it feel before they actually are willing to make some changes. And so I think that, you know, we, we wrote the book um, when we did because, you know, we knew that demographic cliff was upon us um, and that that was a really big issue. We also knew that there was this sort of anti-intellectualism sort of movement happening in the, in the United States. And, you know, all you have to do is turn on any random media channel and somebody's doing a story about is college still even worth it? We thought it was really important that the presidents and that those of us who could give a megaphone to this conversation um, were part of that conversation because it's really, really important. But thank you. You know, we, we've been very, very gratified by the response and um, super, super grateful to Derek Newton, who contributes to Forbes for being one of the first big articles about the book, um, who referred to it, you know, almost in identical terms to what you had just said. He he said that it was, you know, commencement's the indispensable touch point of what's happening in and around higher education right now. And, and, and he said, really, anybody, you know, a VP, a dean, whatever, who doesn't have it on their bookshelf is reliably missing the conversation. And that's, an incredible compliment to us. Um, and we we really, really, really wanted to do you all proud when we wrote this book. And I'm pretty hard on myself as a professional writer. And uh, this is the hardest project of my career. And I'm really proud of it. Let's play a game. What keywords does your website rank for? What doesn't it rank for that you think it should? What are a few opportunities you could be winning on if you tweaked some website copy? Okay, how'd you do? Not great? That's okay. Because our friends at DD Agency want to answer all of those questions for you and then some. DD Agency is a higher ed specific marketing technology agency that has conducted countless SEO audits for colleges and universities across the country. In these audits, they detail where you currently rank, what you could be ranking for, exactly how copy should be tweaked on website pages, and much more. If this sounds like something you could benefit from, Give those folks a ping and be sure to mention that Enrollify sent you to claim a 10% discount on any of their SEO offerings. Head on over to enrollify.org slash D-D-A-S-E-O or simply follow the link in the show notes below that will guarantee you a 10% discount off of your audit. Again, head on over to enrollify.org slash D-D-A-S-E-O to learn more. Now, on to the show. my mind thinks in like metaphors a lot and this is an idea of like what you're kind of saying is like you're capturing this moment but also looking towards the future where it's like you know we were hit with like a meteor you know with the pandemic that just like hard stop everything's shut down but then that sort of like hit sort of created all these ripples that are sort of just sort of like cascading out and bouncing around you know whatever so it's like you know that's going to take time and see how that sort of like plays out uh so yeah i mean i think it's very appropriate to kind of have that perspective like the relevancy with kind of a long tail and who's coming in our footsteps right you know what young professionals are just beginning to work in higher education 
who maybe weren't working in higher ed at the beginning of the pandemic, um, you know, who are going to want to read chapter five of commencement, uh, which is called pandemic as panaceas. They can understand like, oh, these mindsets, these practices, this sort of approach, um, you know, this wasn't even a thing necessarily at, at the institution at work before the pandemic. And maybe this is what sort of uh, was the impetus behind some of this. And again, you know, a lot of it, some of our research was actually really heartbreaking. You know, we had a somebody wrote, so we, we did the interviews with 125 presidents, but we also did survey research. And it was anonymous with higher ed professionals at all levels. And um, the anonymity helped with the truth telling. So they were, we were able to ask really tough questions. So they talked to us about, you know, how stable they feel in their jobs, how likely are they to be looking for a job outside of higher ed, um, what percentage of them are looking um, seriously right now at a um, merger or acquisition um, or strategic partnership at their institution, 45%, by the way. Um, so significant changes, you know, and one of the really sad moments um, for us when we were looking at that data was one of the open-ended questions somebody revealed to us that he was an IT professional and he had been the the tech support person who was helping students with their online login and whatnot for doing distance education when uh, this was a face-to-face primarily campus had, had closed down at the beginning and when they reopened their campus he was let go and was told by their um, uh, CIO that now that the pandemic is mostly behind us and our campus is reopened, um, there we don't have any need for online learning. And I thought, wow, what a huge loss for an institution to have been forced through massive change. You know, certainly emergency response online learning is not the same thing as pedagogically designed online learning. But to have learned what it is to make quick decisions on behalf of your students and your faculty and staff um, and to not take the lesson, you know, to go right back to how you were doing things before um, is really a shame. The good news is, is I think, you know, more than half of higher education institutions learned really important lessons these last few years um, and are applying it to the benefit of their stakeholders, which is really good news. Yeah, well, I think as we're kind of just navigating through sort of you know, uh, you know, kind of the insights, learnings that sort of experience going through uh, writing this book and everything. Like one thing that I want to ask, because I think like there's, you know, again, with my sort of geeky, nerdy sort of point of view, like, you know, you've worked in higher ed, you sort of like blossomed out into this world of, you know, writing and communications and all that, you know, kind of a wider world and everything, but still kind of, I think, have that part of your your heart and your core uh, drawn towards higher education. Like, what is it about that? Because I think like, especially now, obviously, there are people who just sort of like divorce themselves and are like, I'm going out, you know, elsewhere and all that, you know, even people in K through 12 and teachers and everything. So like, what is it about it that sort of keeps you wanting to kind of stay involved, put something together like this, that obviously was such a sort of laborious effort and everything for sort of the benefit of everyone uh, in the higher ed space and everything. So like, what is it about, you know, higher ed that's sort of like engaging or sort of, you know, uh, kind of keeps pulling you back? Yeah, you know, thank you for that. It's a good question. I think that, um, you know, a lot of people look back at their own college experience if they, um, you know, did a degree program or whatnot, and they sometimes look back at that as their their glory days. Um, And for me, interestingly, I was just so nose to the grindstone when I was a college student in undergrad and in both my graduate programs that I don't want to say that I didn't enjoy the moment. So for me, I've actually fallen more in love with higher education after I sort of, you know, got out of it as a student. And even after I got out of it as 
an inside director. And so, you know, one of the things that's kind of unique about me, I think, is that I actually was connected to higher ed before I was even a consumer of it. So my very first job when I was 16 um, was in the bookstore at a community college. Um, so College of Lake County, I grew up in Grays Lake, um, Illinois, and, and my, my mom worked at CLC and my brother worked in the bookstore. And I wanted to make better money than I was making uh, babysitting. And I was old enough to start to get a job. And so, um, you know, when I was in high school, I was you know, reading syllabi and stocking books and seeing what curriculum looked like and applying Pell Grants to people's um, book expenses and um, and without realizing it, really sort of getting pulled into the fabric of higher education. Um, I went on to get a bunch of degrees. My, I got my associates there and then my bachelor's, my first master's degree in comparative literature, um, and then ultimately ended up, um, I worked as a, a faculty member after that first um, master's degree. So I taught freshman English at multiple institutions and very quickly uh, realized that as much as I love teaching, I didn't love teaching as much as I loved writing. And so it's not the same thing to teach other people to write as it is to do your own writing. And so I decided to become a journalist for several years and um, wrote about high tech. I actually worked for a semiconductor magazine and I was the first journalist in the world actually to break the news about um, the invention of Bluetooth technology. I found as a writer, it was really fascinating to learn about a topic that I had no expertise in. Um, at my job interview, actually, for that job, you know, I remember the the interviewer and the, the chief editor said, you know, we usually hire semiconductor engineers to be our, our editors and, you know, to have that background in engineering and whatnot. And I said, no, I said, it's a fair question. And I said, so I think ultimately you have to ask yourself this. Would it be easier to teach me about semiconductor engineering or would it be easier to teach an engineer how to write? And he laughed <laughs> and I got the job. And um, but what I found um, through that experience was that it's fascinating to keep learning. It's fascinating to have a job where you're good at a portion of it, but where part of it requires that you be constantly learning, that you're never going to be truly an expert. Um, and that felt like being a student again. Um, and so I ultimately became the director of communications at um, Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science, which was a really great experience. And then um, got recruited away while I was working on my MBA um, to be the director of marketing um, at a standalone MBA program in Chicagoland called Lake Forest Graduate School of Management. I worked on corporate education. So I've always been in the front of the classroom in some way or behind the scenes in higher ed and then ultimately decided um, it's a lot more fun to do it as a consultant um, for a variety of reasons, right? I always say that working in higher ed, the only thing that's more political than higher education is politics. Um, and so I also think that one of the things that we saw in the research for this book is that different institutions run differently. Um, and the only way to really sort of get a sense of it all um, is to touch a lot of them. And as a consultant, I have the opportunity to work for a lot of different kinds of colleges and universities and never get pigeonholed, you know, as a, you know, private liberal arts person or a public institution or a community college um, person. And so I'm having a whole lot of, a uh, whole lot of fun with that. It takes a certain kind of person to sort of like have kind of the constitution and you know fortitude to kind of push forward in education and like you know healthcare and other spaces are the same where i think it can take a lot out of you it yeah it can be very political or just very uh you know bureaucratic or different things like that so i think like and it's not even saying that as like a dig to the people who sort of like divorce themselves from because it, it's just like hey like please go find whatever else will bring you joy and all that. like i want that for everybody to f find that sort of alignment of like you know the right environment the right you know position doing the right kind of work that you know, they're good at and that they enjoy and, uh, you know, how 
kind of that whole spectrum sort of plays out of, you know, uh, but uh, yeah, I think just like for a lot of people, it's like how you're kind of saying too, we're like kind of working with educational institutions. Like that's for me, I think my sort of perfect place where it's like, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of the decisions or things that we do is still about like, you know, serving students. It's like that. I, I never want to lose that, even though it's like, yeah, I mean, I'm not interacting with individual students like I used to. That's the beauty of it. Right. And, and I think I think you're right. Healthcare is actually a really perfect sort of side by side comparison. Right. So, you know, you might be burned out as a nurse or a doctor, but you went into healthcare because you care about people's health. And so what does it look like then to go be a sort of clinical consultant to the healthcare industry in a different way, right? So I do a lot of work with healthcare as well. And, um, you know, work one of my big clients is a medical malpractice insurance company. And it's just full of not just lawyers, it's full of nurses who have desk jobs who are helping understand patient safety issues. And how do we look at that? And I'm the same way for higher ed. I, I, I like the way you talk about that, because um, there are a lot of reasons why I don't I don't think that there anybody could ever make me an offer to work on the inside of higher ed that I would take. Like, um, listen, I mean, everyone loves the TIA Cref account, right? Um, in fact, like I have a, a swag store, um, higheredswagbag.com. I mean, we even have things that say, I'm here for the students and really tiny, it says, end the TIAA Cref account, but it's hard, right? And a lot of colleges and universities, so much about the culture of working there is really coming from the presidency. Um, and you might have a really great experience for four years and then that president leaves and someone comes in and they're kind of a tyrant or, um, and your job satisfaction can just fall off a cliff. I have a lot of friends who are working in higher ed right now who love the students and they love the work, but they're not loving the team they're on. They're not loving the boss that they report to. And, um, and so, um, a real pat on the back to anybody who loves an industry enough to find a way to keep serving it differently, even if they've been sort of scarred by it. Um, and I think that that's um, the case um, for a lot of people in, in higher ed and healthcare, where we say, I can I can be of meaning. In fact, when I was kind of in the final months, and we were in the final months of writing commencement, um, uh, one of my clients, which is a top 50 um, research institution, asked if I would do a big market research project for them, which I've done in previous years for them. And they repeat the research every few years. And it's my it's my favorite project. I mean, like literally my favorite project and one of my favorite clients ever. Um, and it would automatically always be a yes. And it was interesting to hear myself respond to that. They, of course, did a whole RFP, even though they you know, wanted to give the, the work to me because I'd done it in the past and it was really hard for me. But the truth of the matter was what I told them. And I said, if I take this project for you, like I will be buried in it full time for the next six months. And no matter how much good work we do, the only institution I help during those six months is yours. Or I could finish this project and get commencement out the door in a way that, um, is really rising um, to the standards that Joe and Elvin and I set for this book. And I could maybe help 4,000 universities in the United States and several thousand others in other countries. Um, and for me, I was in it to help not just 5,000 students or 10,000 students or 30,000 students, but what would it look like if I could make a difference for millions of people? Um, and that became really clear that the opportunity to do that was in writing commencement well and then kind of making a full-time job of going out there to campuses and, and getting onto media outlets like yours um, to help people understand that 
And this book is there for them to give them ideas, to give them the ability to walk into a meeting with their boss or a committee and slam that big heavy book on the table and say, it's right here in chapter six, that thing I've been telling you, like, damn it, there's an example of a college or university that's doing it. And we shouldn't be so afraid, like, here's the social proof. And so for me, this book was a way to help a lot of people um, in a really um, somewhat sort of concise way. On one hand, it's just like, you know, hearing the unique perspectives of all these uh, presidents and just sort of like really getting that sort of pulse check. And then like what you're saying too about like almost like the power of, you know, the top person at institution, how they're sort of affecting, you know, because they're going to say like, yeah, students are customers or I don't think they are or like, and that's just going to filter through the whole culture of the institution for better or worse. And just sort of like kind of interfacing with that. But even like, because I wanted to like to mention this, and I, I don't want to forget. Like another big takeaway is like hoping that you know graduate students, new professionals, and you know different folks like have likely what is just a gaping void of sort of that context and information. Because I was just thinking, I was like, oh my gosh, if I was like a grad student studying through like one, just like the disruptions of my studying yeah. and all that, but like you know, you're like in a program during the pandemic it's like obviously nothing you're reading is at all right. relevant to like this new you know sort of frontier it's, yeah. so it's like you need stuff like this to kind of like fill it because it's like yeah still all right. the classic student development theories are true and all that kind of stuff but like you're going to just feel such like sort of ill-equipped to kind of you know really understand this moment as you're yeah. becoming a, well a that's exactly it you know in terms of what we want people um to take away i mean it in some ways it sort of comes down to what the very last line of the book is that the, the beginning of a new era in higher education begins with you like each individual person who's working in or on behalf of or around higher education has an opportunity um to not get sucked into what my co-author, um, Dr. Salustio, calls the assimilation culture. He actually just had a piece, I think, came out today in Fierce Education uh, about assimilation culture, this idea that that even when we show up at a new college or university with our own ways of doing things, we find out how they do things. And we usually just relent and we you just fit right into their culture or this process has to go through three committees or whatnot. Um, and but that's not how higher education is going to change. Higher education is going to change when we can all look in the mirror and say, this new way of being truly student-centered, of truly offering access, affordability, flexibility, um, you know, belongingness, um, all of this, it only happens if each one of us um, sort of steps up and says, I'm willing to do away with the status quo. I'm willing to feel a little uncomfortable while we do some disruptive things. I'm willing to take some risks. Um, and, and I'm willing to start asking the students, what do you need from us that we're not giving you now? And I'm willing to fight for them um, to evolve this institution. So that's, you know, a huge part of it. We also, you know, really want people to, to take away that, um, that your perspective and what you do is really important. And there are lots of other people who have different perspectives and um, and it behooves you to understand sort of what's being said, you know, in president's offices. Um, and and maybe there are just things that you've not thought about. I mean, certainly for us, we'd never heard of a school that um, allows the students to earn cryptocurrency and pay down their tuition. And when they graduate, they become part owner of the school. We'd never heard of that until we interviewed the president of GCAS um, College Dublin, right? We'd never heard of a community college that was venture-backed, where the curriculum strategy around what programs are we going to offer um, were really, really clear about we are not going to offer programs where the people who get employed in these particular fields will be going into a field where we believe that automation or robotics um, will 
have them out of a job within 20 years. So any of those jobs that we think that that's going to happen for, we're not going to educate for that. We're not going to educate for jobs where people are not allowed to work from home. And we only want to educate um, for programs where you can get um, a academic credential, some sort of certificate from a community college and um, an industry recognized credential, right? So become like a Salesforce administrator and you also get that licensure from Salesforce, not just your community college certificate, um, and that you're going to be making a family supporting wage of $50,000 or more immediately after finishing the program. So we talked to Akiba Kovitz, the president um, at Foundry College. That's what their college is all about. That's what they're doing. And so, you know, I think if you've only ever worked in one or two or three different kinds of schools, you have no idea what the, the you know, other parts of the sector really look like. And that was exciting for us. Um, and that's been exciting for us to hear feedback from readers of our book saying, oh, I've always thought like, you know, if if we could figure out how to think about, you know, so Joe has a really interesting argument in the book about why, if we say that we believe in lifelong learning, right, then why are we never getting the same students back? Why, if they get an undergraduate degree from us, um, are they going and getting a graduate degree from another institution, even though we might offer that program they're looking for? Like, why is there no loyalty? Um, and what would it look like if we had a loyalty program? What if what if college relationships with students and learners looked more like you know a Marriott rewards program where you would never ever stay at a hotel other than Marriott because of the way they've treated you? Um, I have four college degrees from four separate institutions, um, and um, frankly, and I talk about this in the book, um, none of them have ever offered me any meaningful experience beyond the first thing that they sold me. And so, you know, we like to talk about things like lifelong learning, but we don't really know how to execute it on, on higher ed. So we wanted people to read this book and one, be validated for what they've been thinking and feeling and going, oh my gosh, there's somebody, it's in this book, like it's right here. Um, and we wanted them to feel empowered to be the conduit for change, to show them, you know, here are some people doing some really innovative things and here's how you can do it too. Yeah, I just love the kind of inherent uh, optimism, sort of the imagination, yeah. uh, you know, about what's possible, because that's like, through such a like, tumultuous, ambiguous, you know, difficult time that we all had to go through, like, you know, you kind of have to like that much more carve out your sort of peace and your happiness and sort of, you know, uh, sort of harmony with the yeah. with this new world and everything. And I think like, uh, for me, it's that idea where like, it's very empowering and reassuring like i think we saw so much more of like what's possible yeah. like what we're capable of like sort of what our institutions and our organizations yeah. can you know do to kind of support us and how we can support each other and all that so i think yeah it's like a it's a great primer yeah. in that regard where like you could read it and be like nah, i don't know if that would work here right. like maybe it's a little bit of this a little bit of that and i like, can kind of remix and mash up you know right. a lot of these ideas and just think through what, what's possible and what would so work think, for you i mean that's yeah. one of the things we're finding as we're starting to talk to um different colleges and universities that are inviting us in to facilitate leadership programs or whatnot as we're, we're finding out like okay well here's a concept that that was interesting to you that you heard about in our book what is the version of that that would work at your institution? So how, how would you customize that to work with your culture or the student population that you, you serve? And by the way, how can you be serving different student populations, right? So that's one of the things in the book that um, we're getting a ton of feedback on right now is you know, we have a chapter called Where Did All the Students Go? Um, and we have watched, um, sadly, but not surprisingly, um, since the release of the book four months ago, um, a lot of small private liberal arts colleges, many of them religiously affiliated, announcing their closures. 
And, and when you take a look at the IPEDS data, you take a look at publicly available information from their audited financials and whatnot, none of these closures are a surprise. They were all falling apart for the last five, eight, 10 years. Um, some of them are blaming the pandemic, which I think is um, unethical um, on the parts of their leadership teams for many of these institutions. Um, you know, they, they used, um, you know, COVID cares money and whatnot to float themselves through it. Um, and, and now they've run out of money. But you know, it, 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 it yeah, it's been an interesting moment. And you're absolutely right. Some people and by the way, some people are going to look at something cool in the book and go, why doesn't my institution do this kind of stuff? And, and they may go fight for it or say that our leadership's never going to let us do these things on behalf of students. And that may help them get clarity around what kind of institution they ought to be working for, right? Are their talents um, being, you know, stifled at the current institution that they're working for? And I think that that's probably the case for a lot. But you were talking about graduate programs and um, we're having a lot of fun. So tons of people who are getting uh, PhDs and EDD degrees and higher education and leadership are reaching out and saying, I just read the book. Um, I cited it and put it in my literature review for my dissertation. This is the only book that has like ever truly spoken to me as like somebody who works in higher ed. So um, I was just talking to the CHRO at uh, Bellarmine University and she's working on her PhD. And she's like, this book explains like where we are and where we're headed in a way that nothing else in the curriculum is. So that of course is one of our big hopes is that higher education graduate programs will put commencement um, in, in the curriculum. Um, I think it's important that they do because like you said, there are, I think there are plenty of things out there that are about something very specific, you know, admission strategies or whatnot, or some sort of theoretical, you know, nonprofit versus for-profit sort of sort of arguments or whatnot. Um, but we tried really hard to be comprehensive in this book in a way that no one else has done. And um, and I do think that um, I do think it's important um, that people have that perspective if they're going to be leading in higher ed. As we wind down, are there other uh, resources or things that you'd want to give kind of a tip of the hat to um, that maybe were helpful references or just other stuff that's kind of grabbing your attention right now um, that we can include in the show? Yeah, notes? well, I mean, I would say the conversation continues on the EdUp Experience podcast. So, you know, EDUP, the EdUp Experience podcast. Um, so I, I strongly encourage people to subscribe so that you can continue to hear these conversations happening in real time, releasing multiple episodes every week. And so I think that that's an important conversation. I think there's really important conversations happening on LinkedIn right now among higher education professionals. I get tagged every day in probably a dozen, you know, things, whether it's an announcement about a president being asked to step down or it's an announcement about um, you know, a merger acquisition or, you know, interesting um, data happening. So the conversations um, among higher ed professionals on LinkedIn, I think, are more active and more fascinating now than they ever have been um, just in the last, you know, six to 12 months. So I would say people should be spending time there. And if you're interested in who's talking about these sort of more um you know, innovative, interesting issues in higher education, a good way to sort of see who, what media is covering that is if you go to the website for the book, commencementthebook.com, there is a button at the top called Media Mentions, and you can get all of the television appearances. And, you know, after this one drops, um, it will you'll be right there, Dustin, um, with the rest of them. Um, so that might be a good way to say where's, you know, a couple dozen places where interesting conversations about higher ed and its future are happening. Um, and um, we've we've collected all of those media appearances on our website. So that those are probably good places to start. Appreciate that. Just a final thought or a call to action 
that you want to share on this topic to end the episode? You have a lot of control, even though this feels like an uncontrollable moment and there's a huge opportunity. And I would remind you that the biggest mistake that we can make um, is operating for the era in which we were founded instead of the era in which we exist. Um, and so we need to stop patting ourselves on the backs about saying, but we're a 200 year old institution. We can't keep running like one, or we're gonna be a 200 year old institution that closes. And so there are huge opportunities. And um, I hope that you feel empowered and supported and validated um, in all that you're doing and would love for people to keep in touch with us. So please connect with me and Joe Lucio on LinkedIn is the easiest place to find us. You can pick up your copy of Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education on Amazon on and please invite us to your campus. So we're spending a lot of time talking to higher education employees about um, what we learned um, and how they might be able to apply it to their, their jobs. And so we'd be happy to come to your campus physically or virtually to keep the conversation going. You can't keep doing the same thing and expecting different results. Like, cause I've started to see, like, I think just an acknowledgement where like, you know, higher ed has just been able to sort of like coast for a while where it's just like you've built it that is how people sort of like gain the credential to uplift their life and it's like okay so like for those like 200 years is the first time that like there's institutions really needing to kind of uh you know kind of reckon with you know the diversity of ways that people can sort of you know become more gainfully employed and all that so i think yeah just trying to uh you know, find the inspiration, have the conversations and like do the work of figuring out how you and your institution and its history and its people and the way that like, how are you going to kind of navigate all that? Because it is going to look different. Like, because I think it's refreshing that sort of with these sort of calls to action, like, you know, higher ed is such a like, you know, show and tell collaborative, like, you know, there's a network approach in the, in the, in the space more so maybe than other places. So like, that's really great, but like, it is going to be, you know, trying to take that morsel of an idea and how do you sort of, you know, again, kind of remix and mash it up, you know, like make it sort of uh, applicable to your uh, kind of environment, your constituents or the constituents that you want and need to serve and those sort of things. You know, what you're getting at, I think is, is very true that colleges and universities do still have an opportunity um, to serve particular niches, to do things the way they do them uniquely, right? So, you know, Unity Environmental University in Maine, right? They really sort of focused um, on environmental programs and, um, you know, being carbon net neutral themselves as an institution and all these things, right? Or there's, you, know, you take a look at an institution like Babson College, where you can major in a lot of different things, but everything that you do at that institution has this sort of underpinning around entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial thinking. And so different institutions have different ways of going about it. Um, and in the book, we actually have a whole bunch of quizzes to help people figure out like, okay, so if we used to serve traditional 18 year olds who came to us full time to live on a campus for a coming of age college experience to learn how to make friends and, and do laundry and, and learn to learn, um, we know there's not enough of them anymore because of the birth rate decline. Who are all these other um, audiences and, and learner populations that Kate and Joe talk about in the book that might be the right population? I, I talk to people all the time who who totally missed the news that that incarcerated individuals are now Pell eligible. So, and when you think about that, that's really important. 85% of people who are in jail right now will get out and will go back, because most of those are short sentences, will go back to the workforce. 
And there's an opportunity for colleges and universities of all stripes um, that have online learning capabilities to be able to educate those members of our society. So, and, and by the way, the federal government um, will fund that with Pell Grants so that, you know, there is funding for that. And so there's just so many, you know, and, and I can't stop talking about the 39 million Americans who have some college and no degree. And is there something um, that they are looking to learn to level up, reskill, you know, upskill in their career? And how do we do that? And no, it doesn't have to be a degree. Take this as an inspiring call to action. That's sort of, uh, sort of, uh, you know, laying the groundwork here and exploring all the context. And you know, this book is sort of a, you know, a uh, you know roadmap of the of the paths that have been treaded that you can follow and divert from and sort of, you know, go all in between. And you know, you know, obviously, like the folks that you can look to for, you know, continued inspiration. And certainly, you know, you and Joe, uh, you know, making yourselves available as well. So just uh, appreciate again, you. Uh, you know, the whole team of folks that helped put this together and for you to jump on, to be on the podcast, talk all about everything. Just really appreciate, appreciate your time. Uh, and yes, go, go find commencement, go check out that book. It is great, but yeah, thank you so much. Kate. Thanks so much, Justin. Appreciate it. Hey all Zach here from Enrollify. If you like this podcast, chances are you'll like other Enrollify shows too. Our podcast network is growing by the month, and we've got a plethora of marketing, admissions, and higher ed technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks that are all designed to empower you to become a better higher ed professional. Our shows feature a selection of the industry's best as your hosts. Learn from Mickey Baines, Jeremy Tears, Jamie Hunt, Corinne Myers, Jamie Gleason, and many, many more. You can learn more about the Enrollify Podcast Network at podcasts.enrollify.org. Our shows help higher ed marketers and admissions professionals find their next big idea. Find yours at podcasts.enrollify.org.